Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Vonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Lars Tvede is an entrepreneur, investor and best-selling author. He spent 11 years in portfolio management and investment banking before moving to the tech and telecommunication industries in the mid-90s, where he has been co-founder of several successful companies. In this episode, we discuss why Lars has started a new hedge fund, his biggest lessons in business, how to prepare for luck and randomness, the political landscape, and his best tips for the next generation of founders. Let's start the show. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Okay, everyone, welcome back. Super excited to have Lars joining the podcast. Lars, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a pleasure. So when I said you were joining the show, I got a comment on Twitter and it said that you're the most interesting guy I ever brought on the show. Why do you think that comment arrived, that you're so interesting? How would you describe yourself? Ooh, <laughs> no, I, I don't know what the, what the rationale is. Uh, but I, I'm actually in different areas. So I'm a financial investor and entrepreneur, uh, but I also engage in political debate and has written some books about uh, the future of Western civilization and technology and, and, and the political landscape. So it could, it com- could come from either of those sides. Um, Be- because but, um, this interest... Are you me nervous? Yeah, no, 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 it's good. I think maybe it's a good place to start in your childhood and upbringing. Can you describe what you were interested in? Was it like you were like a businessman, an entrepreneur from the early age? Or is this something that evolved over time? Not at all. I, um, my parents were working for the public sector. My father was a scientist and my mother, uh, when I was young, she was uh, working at home. And then later she took uh, an education as a social advisor. So she was working and... A job advisory and refugees and so on and I had it never crossed my mind at all that I should ever go into the private sector uh, none of their friends except one family worked in the private sector what did happen to me was that I had a friend in school who was his, his sister was so much older that he was like a, almost like a lone child and his parents would go to France uh, every year uh, and stay there for quite a long time with an uncle. And um, so since he was alone, I was asked to join. So I went down there and we lived in St. Paul de Vance in a wine yard. And this guy was a businessman, the one who had the, the, the uncle. He was a rich uncle and uh, he had a subscription agreement with Bentley Rolls Royce. So every second year he had a Bentley, every second year he had a Rolls Royce and he always sold them for more than he paid because he kind of skipped the queue. So he said he couldn't afford anything else. But um, all his friends were entrepreneurs and business people. And for me, it was a complete eye-opener every year between 9 and 13 to be in the summer between business people, entrepreneurs, and the rest of the year between people who work for the public sector. And I just 
realized that I, I thought they had more juice pack, they had more energy, they had a more positive view of the world, they were more optimistic, they were more fun. I mean, not uh, my, my parents could be fun, but, but I just thought the environment was much more fun there. And then my mind started to change that maybe I should not work in the public sector as a scientist, maybe I should go into business. And that then later in, in high school, I met, uh, I got a good friend whose father was an entrepreneur. And so there again, I got in, introduced to such an environment and, and I identified much more with that. So that's, that's how it changed. How random do you feel life is based on that story? Do you actually feel that if it wasn't for that input, you would maybe work in the public sector? Or do you think like in, eventually you would figure it out? Or do you think it's life is a bit random and it's about taking the signals you get in and using them? I think um, how random life is depends on who you are because some people make a very fixed career plan and stick to it their whole life. Uh, my life on a sort of tactical operational plan has been entirely random. Uh, nothing has been planned. I have stumbled backwards into everything. I just come across things. I just randomly meet people. I just see things and then certainly it takes a turn. Um, so I'm, I'm giving you a long answer, but so I'm, I'm only in the beginning of this answer now. But I give you an example. So at the beginning of this year, uh, 2020, of course, I had no idea that there would be COVID. I had no idea that I would publish a new book, write a new book. I had no idea about that. And I had no idea that I would uh, found a hedge fund. So this all happened because uh, when the COVID, um, <clears throat> the COVID started in, in China, it was something that most people probably read about. There was this new flu thing in China. Uh, nobody took any notice. Uh, stock markets kept going up. Governments did pretty much nothing. And then on, was it, I think it was on the 24th of February, I wake up in the morning and I take my phone as, as I normally do. I, I like to work with my phone in bed because my brain wakes up much faster than my body. So um, then I don't need to move my body, but I can still work with my brain. Anyway, so I, I open it up and there's an email from Goldman Sachs and another one from an institute called Bank Credit Institute. Both of them have a big study about COVID. And I start reading them and both of them uh, paint a very serious picture of something that people are not taking serious. And uh, at the end of it, I'm totally sure that uh, we'll go into a massive recession, that stock markets will crash, etc., etc. So I call my banks and, and ask them to sell absolutely everything, all equities I've had since 2009, which has been a great run. It's up 400% so the, the markets in that period. So just sell everything and, and this kind of conversation where they repeat everything. Yes, everything. <laughs> and then I sat down on a road on Facebook that uh, I thought uh, this was going to be very serious and, and I just sold all my equities and, and I explained why this was so serious. And then uh, nothing, I think this was on a Wednesday and then Thursday, Friday, nothing really happened. We were half a percent from the absolute top of the stock market when I sold. But then on the next morning, the markets collapsed and then they did the fastest uh, collapse since World War II. And then in the middle of that, 
actually uh, about five trading days after I sold my equities, I went short. So I, I sold futures to earn money on some of the downturn. And I wrote that immediately on Facebook. And then as the markets came down, I advised everybody repeatedly to now buy, buy, buy. Uh, this is an excellent opportunity to get in and establish long-term positions. Then I'm, I'm still explaining the randomness of, night, of life. So of course, so COVID was unexpected. Um, then uh, I get a call from a publisher who said, I've been following all your trading recommendations and you got it right. Like every time you, every turn, everything you got right. And you've written some quite long, complex books about uh, investing. Don't you want to write a book, uh, which is really easy to understand for, for normal people about what, how, how people like you work. And then I uh, dictated that book in 12 days. Um, and then, a friend of mine said, Lars, you should start a hedge fund. You are really good at, at trading and, and you've clearly been very good at it for 30 years. So why don't you start a hedge fund? And I said, well, this is a big project. But then he said, we'll set up everything for you. You don't have to do anything until the fund is actually established in Luxembourg with banking partners and so on. We'll set, set it up and then you just start trading. So I said, okay. And then the book came out and then the book became the number one bestseller in Denmark has been uh, is still today and it's been almost every day for the last two months has been the number one sold book in Denmark. So now I've got uh, 724 people who wrote to me if they couldn't invest in my hedge fund. So going back to your question here, I have with this book and with this fund and I had no plan. It was not planned. It was not a part of my plan at all for what I should do this year. I had some other plans. And by the way, um, in the summer, I was sitting, um, uh, so I spent, because of COVID, I spent four months on a boat that I have in the Mediterranean and didn't leave it for four months because it's so you know complicated with traveling. And I had guests coming on board, off board, and then I had uh, five days where I was alone only with the crew. And then I sit uh, with the captain, we have a glass of wine and we look just for fun at yachts for sale. And then so, suddenly there comes up a fantastic yacht. And I said, uh, his name is Alfonso. I said, Alfonso, this is the kind of boat I like. And then we look specification. There was incredibly fuel efficient. It was a 40 meter boat. Normally they, you know, they eat fuel like crazy. So how can it be so efficient? And then he said, oh, this is electric parts. It's a fantastic system. And, the best you can have and so on. Then we went further, further down. And then at the end, it said bank owned. Bank owned. That means that somebody went bankrupt. And the bank now sits with a wonderful boat. And, um, you know, you can really sometimes negotiate incredible prices with bank owned boats. So instead of going back to Switzerland, we sailed to France where the boat was, got a berth right next to it. And then for two weeks, I had people crawling all over, including myself inside the hull and so on, investigating this boat. It was in an excellent build boat. And then I gave a bid and the bid was low, but I got it. So, so that was another big project. And uh, I spent something like two man months on it. Um, and that was not a part of the plan. So back to your question. And sorry, this is probably one of the longest answers you ever had to a question. 
<laughs> stop laughing. But I think uh, for many people, uh, uh, the tactical things are completely random, but the overall direction is not because you you will be you will have so many things that happen in your life and you're attracted to some and you're not attracted to others. And so what you're attracted to depends on your value system, your moral instincts, your personality. So you will always you know, go in that direction. I'm very focused on the difference between being laser focused and having a radar. So people who, who make a very uh, detailed plan for the career, they work with a laser focus and, and people who uh, are more entrepreneurs, they're more like a radar. So they scan everything around them and then they just grab things they like and they, you know, move away from stuff they don't like. And the interesting thing is that you probably know there's been a lot of research into uh, happiness. There's even an international happiness database compiling all this research. But I found out there's, there's also been research into luck. Um, there's a, especially a scientist called Weissman. He has studied why some people seem to be lucky and some people seem to be particularly unlucky. So he put adverts in, in media asking people to contact him if they felt that they throughout life had been particularly lucky or particularly unlucky. And then he made a lot of uh, experiments with them. And for instance, one experiment, uh, people have to read a newspaper and he says, you have to read this, in a, well, you have to flip through this newspaper and tell me how many photos there are in it. Um, so they go, and um, at the end, somebody says there's 21 photos, but some of them stop much earlier. And that's because on page one, it says, you can stop right here, there are 21 photos, it says in the headline. And another one says, if you stop here, you will get a thousand dollars or whatever. So the lucky people were the ones who noticed these things. The unlucky people were only looking for the pictures. So they had laser focus on the pictures, but were not noticing anything else. He also did a study where people had to go into a bar and then he put candid camera, hidden cameras. And then on the, the, deliberately, he would come 20 minutes late for an interview. And then he just noticed what they did in those 20 minutes. So the lucky people, they would start uh, talking with other people around them. The unlucky people would just, you know, sit with their phone or stare at a newspaper or something like that. So it's, it's uh, partly built into your personality, but it's also a choice whether you want to work with a, more with a laser or more with a radar. And it can very well be that people who are more uh, radar people, uh, they need to work with laser people to get stuff done. Uh, because if the more, if you're entirely a radar person, then maybe you don't focus enough. So you need to work with somebody who, who are capable and decide to focus much more. I agree a lot, Lars. Uh, just a couple of points. You said a lot of interest, interesting stuff. I mean, the good part is that the answers are fantastic. The bad part is that you're making the host obsolete because I can just ask you one question and go and take a coffee. But uh, I felt one of the points that I really uh, took notice on was the part where you said, yeah, you, you wrote a book on basically 12 days because I think there's a big difference in forcing things in life and just letting it flow. Yeah, just yeah. if you take this podcast, for example, we've been running it for four years. I never asked you to come on the show, even though you're Danish, you're well known. But 
I don't know when we got in touch, maybe last week, because I felt this is the right moment. Lars has a hedge fund, the podcast is big, let's do it. Instead of like using three years of my life, forcing you to get on. So sometimes I feel like people are forcing stuff in their life when they really should not be forcing stuff because it should just come naturally. If you, mm-hmm. if you have an idea, I want to write a bestseller book, I feel like that's a bad place to start. While you were, I have an insight, let, let me put out that insight. And today people want to know that, what that insight is, right? Right. Mm. That you can also prepare for that luck. Um, so for instance, I get a lot of ideas. And one of the things I often do is I have an idea for a, a company or service. And sometimes I go out and register a domain that would be suitable. So a good name. But I actually don't start the company. And the, the reason I don't start it is uh, then I talk with people and I explain them uh, what it w- would be. Um, and if nobody seems to be excited, I can't get anybody who wants to join me in it, then I just don't do it. And I just have it like uh, on store. And I, there's an example in 2009, I wrote a book called Super Trends. And that in that, <clears throat> when, when I'd finished the book, I thought I would promote it with a list of 100 things that would happen in the future. And then I was flipping through this quite big book and even though it was a big book full of details, it was a bit of a struggle for me to find a hundred exact, precisely described events in the future. I did, I mean, I, I must do it, but then I thought something wrong here because I'm writing about the future and there will be thousands of significant events in the future, even in, in the, you know, the likely rest of my life. And I actually don't know what they are. Uh, and nobody knows what they are. In order to know what all these significant events are, we have to go out and ask thousands of experts who work on nuclear fusion and cultured meat and all the rest of it, um, and ask them, what are the significant events that will happen within what you work on, and when do you think it will happen, and what is it, and w- which impact will it have? So there, in 2009, I had that idea. I, I, I bought the name supertrends.com from an evil squatter, <laughs> overpaying a lot. And then uh, I, I, I described the idea of making a service where we would compile all this information from experts. Nobody really got enthusiastic. Then um, a year and a half ago, I, I talked about it again. And then suddenly there was somebody who was enthusiastic. And then we started uh, sitting in different uh, work group with teams of students and others and to create a business case for it and to outline how it should be. And then we thought, okay, we need to code this. And the first one we could think of is a Danish guy that lives in Switzerland who has a software company called Twipoke. So I wrote to him the short description and said, we'd like to do this. Uh, would you, could you meet and give an offer for coding the thing? Then we meet him and then he said, um, yeah, I can do this or we can do this on one condition. I want to be your 50-50 partner. I said, why? He's, and then he said, because we have conferences about technology every year. And what we do when people go for lunch or for dinner is so we put up a whiteboard and then we draw uh, with a marker, a uh, timeline. And then we write a question like, when will quantum computing be able to mine all bitcoins or something like that? And then people should take magnets and put them on the timeline. 
And so what you described is a software uh, crowdsourcing tool to do the same. And since we've, doing, we've been doing this um, in a very primitive way for 10 years, it's right down our alley. And that's why we want to be your partner. So certainly there's somebody who's enthusiastic. And now we are putting a lot of muscle into this project and are very proud of it. So um, I think I if think... I can add one thing, Lars, I think because we have so many uh, papers about what make a startup succeed and is it founders, is it market, is it product, but really the timing, I don't know how much the percentage you feel timing is key in a startup or project, but at least in my experience, like the timing is super hard to calculate and maybe the, the thing you're talking about here, do people really, are they enthusiastic about it could be one part of figuring out the timing question. Yeah, so um, the, the timing that I described here is not a timing where it had to be uh, last year. Um, there's no technological reason or market reason why it had to be last year or, or why it shouldn't have been 10 years ago. This was timing because certainly there were the right people who were interest, interested. But in, in, uh, in a lot of business, Timing is about predicting when some uh, technologies will reach a certain stage and at the same time, so we can merge them into something new. So uh, in, in the book Super Trends, there are a lot of examples of, of laws similar to Moore's law. For instance, there's Height's law about the efficiency of LED light. There's a law about um, the efficiency of nuclear fusion which has been following a Moore's law uh, since the 1970s and is only about five years away from, from sustainable ignition right now, which is interesting. How's the battery in the Tesla and stuff? Those yeah, batteries? Yeah. So, so the Tesla thing was clearly an example where you see that the batteries follow an exponential efficiency curve. And you can just calculate, you could uh, Elon Musk could calculate that there would, they were approaching rapidly a point where it would be economically and technically feasible to make electric cars. And it's like ski shooting. You're, you're somebody, uh, they, you know, the machine throws up a, a ski and you have to shoot it in the air. But in order to hit it, at, you actually have to aim ahead of it. And so if you, um, you can see this core technology is following uh, typically exponential curves, then you can calculate the point where it makes sense to make popular applications. And then very often the, the great businesses are not about the core technologies, it's about the applications on top of the core technologies. And one of the big um, problems, which is also an opportunity I see is that Many of the people who create the core technologies are not good at seeing the applications. Some examples, when the radio was invented, at first people thought it was a suitable tool for reading aloud books. <laughs> so all the other things you could do on radio only came later. When television was invented, a lot of people thought this was for theater pieces that you could watch on the screen at home. So you, you took applications from a different core technology, if you wish, uh, if, if you will, and, and, and imagine these are new core technologies. So the people who are good at developing technology are typically, uh, they have another mindset 
than the people who can make the applications for it. 100%. Uh, it certainly takes another mindset to, to create the core technology of radio and television transmission and the receivers and the mindset to make a talk show. I mean, these such, such people could never swap job. That's completely different. But, so, all, but also sometimes I feel like some of the biggest innovation, let's call it the railroads, like the internet, for instance, if it's publicly funded, you wouldn't expect public people to build applications. You would sort of expect entrepreneurs to get this great technology and then build something on top of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's why, I mean, now we, we're getting close to politics, but I think um, when states run services, they should think of it as open platforms. Bit like you know, um, um, on, on a smartphone that you have an open platform for apps, so an app store. So you make the you make set some rules and you ensure that everybody can compete on fair terms, and then you you enable lots and lots of access to make the applications. And you can do this in healthcare. That's how pretty much how healthcare works in Switzerland, where I live. You can certainly also do it in education with charter schools and and um, commercial schools and all kinds of schools and then everybody experiment and, and then you get creativity. It's also the same uh, big idea behind Bitcoin and blockchain. You create a set of rules and you mm. program consensus based stuff and then people mm. can build on top of it. So it's super interesting. But how do you like to spot trends? You talked about reading a Goldman Sachs report, but I don't think you, your trends are based on Goldman Sachs analytics. So how do you like, if you're looking for trends, is it just serendipity in your end? You're reading newspapers, science, science articles, or do you have a specific pattern or method you use to see the future? Well, uh, newspapers to me is not a very useful time to first spotting trends. Um, actually, uh, I, Goldman Sachs is one of the inputs I do value. Um, so on average, uh, throughout the last decades, I've been reading um, about three hours a day. Sometimes it's a lot more than three hours, but there are also days where it's a lot less. But on average, I think it's three hours. And I always thought that I need to spend those three hours as wisely as I can. And that means I want to read the best material I can find in the world. And I find that a lot of that actually comes from the top banks, uh, especially top investment banks. So JP, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Citibank, they're all, they're, some of them are commercial and investment bank, Goldman Sachs, etc. And from private uh, research companies like Alpine and uh, bank credit analysts that you have to pay for. And so they, they have top, top analysts, people with an IQ 140 to 155 plus. You know, Mensa, they, they, have, they make a cut up at 155. You don't know uh, if you get a certificate from Mensa, it just says you are 155 plus. Anyways, it's these kind of people, they make this, this kind of research. It's incredibly high caliber. I read it and I, I, I have the attitude that uh, in, in terms of analyzing what what goes on and, and is likely to go on in the world. I don't have to come up with any ideas at all of my own. So I do come up with ideas and insights of my own, but I don't have to, because if I listen to the smartest guys in the world and girls, um, that, that will give me the excellent input. 
how do you go about judging if you can capture a value in a space? Because you see in the, the green bubble, uh, it's not enough to see a trend that creates value to people. You actually need to capture some of that value. How do you assess the valuation on one hand, but also what you think you can capture out of that market? Yeah, so I'm very conscious about the fact that uh, in order to capture value, it's not enough that the market is growing. Let's say that uh, the market for soap is growing, um, but if 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 any producer of soap have zero competitive barriers and there are lots and lots of producers who are producing soap, it it could be. I mean, this is just I mean, I just imagine this as an example. But, but it, let's we could imagine that market for soap grows twenty percent a year for a long, long time, but nobody really really makes uh, big money on it. Um, so you have lots of cases of that. So you have. But isn't some... the airline industry is that example basically? I think if you calculate yeah. the whole industry, I don't think there's a lot of revenue left. Yeah, that the airline is definitely an example. And I had the idea of this is many many years ago to make a hedge fund or a fund that only did uh, three things. It was perpetually short airlines and then long equities for the same amount. And then it was perpetually short gold and long high yield currencies for the same amount. And so that would have been, if, if I'd done that in the 1980s, there would, would have been some scary moments where it went the wrong way, but on average, it would have been a massive money machine. So you need to have some competitive barriers. And I'd, um, I'll give one example of a very simple company that I invested in. Uh, that was in 2001, I think. It was Jungfraubahn. It was a railway in Switzerland that goes from Interlagen into the Jungfrau Mountains, and then it goes in circles inside the mountain and reaches the top at 4,000, 4, what, 3,600 meters, I think. So uh, when I bought it, it had a price earnings of 10, so, you know, earnings yield over almost 10%. Um, <laughs> and the point was, it's not going to get a competitor. I mean, if people want to go to see the top of that mountain, uh, unless they, they will allow, you know, a, a lot of uh, quadcopters or whatever, it will never have a competitor. And it was a fantastic investment. And then, but this, this was a quite small company, but I ended up at one point, I owned actually a quite substantial part of it. But then I saw um, Warren Buffett, uh, who thinks like me just 10 times better and manages a trillion times more money than I do. He, he bought a railway across the Midwest uh, with the same rationale that they would not have a competitor and there would always be a need to move stuff across there. So um, th these are two examples, similar examples of competitive barriers, but uh, in tech, which is, you know, where uh, a lot of the excitement is and the money can be made uh, and the value can be created. It's network effects, very often network effects. And um, it does what you create could be sophisticated, but doesn't need to be as long as you create networks of effects. And that's why companies like Instagram and YouTube and so on have had crazy valuations very, very early. I agree. 
um, since we're talking about companies and betting on tech companies, maybe that's a good case. Uh, can we talk a bit about risk and volatility? Because I think there's a misunderstanding if you're not in the industry, or I can take Bitcoin is also a perfect example. Uh, volatility isn't bad. Uh, you just need need to know how to manage it. So if Uber, for instance, was a private company like it was for many, many years, that stock would be very volatile during the years. It would go up and down based on reputation risk, uh, competitors, etc. But mm. shareholders never see that volatility because it's not on the exchange market. So clearly there's a misunderstanding of risk and volatility. They can be paired and super dangerous, but they can also be misunderstood. How do you go about assessing risk in your portfolio and the investments you make? Yeah, so volatility is dangerous if it means that you are forced out of your position at a bad time, uh, which normally involves being leveraged. But if, if you don't have that issue, you it, it is inherently an advantage that you have volatility, as you, as you indicate. So let me, let me take uh, two takes on it. Uh, the first one is that you're not playing to the advantage, but you have a very long time horizon. So you're investing, uh, let's say as a private person, you start investing when you're 25 and you end investing when, when you're 80, 85 or something like that. You know, people get older and older. So you've got 60 years. And so would, what does it really matter whether your, your revenues go up in straight line or they do like this? I can't see that matters much because you know, the, the important point is that uh, it goes up and um, typically the more volatility, the more on average it goes up. So you just ignore it. Uh, but there are lots of uh, techniques to take advantage of, te um, of volatility. Um, there's something called dollar averaging and uh, balance uh, portfolios with rebalancing. For instance, if you have a portfolio of bonds and equities, um, and you say, we just rebalance every quarter. So if you have a situation where the equities prices have dropped 30%, then you'll go in and sell some bonds. They would typically have gone up because when the equities have gone down, you sell some of the bonds, you buy more equities to rebalance. And if the equities then go up 200%, then you sell equities and buy some bonds. And on average, completely automatically, this will make you beat the market. And so, yeah, so you can, you can, you can implement a system that is a robot that automatically in the long run beats the market. Now, having said that, I'm not a fan of, of bonds, especially not of, of corporate of, uh, government bonds right now, because the yields are ridiculous, but that's another matter. Did you see the debate uh, about the Norwegian oil fund when we hired a new CEO? No, I didn't. Let, me, me. let me explain you. So basically, we we had we appointed this great guy, uh, Nikolai Tangen, who ran uh, Aku Capital or AKO or how he says it. And he's a brilliant hedge fund uh, guy. Mm -hmm. But in Norway, we like to think the oil fund as a passive index machine. Mm -hmm. So, but that wasn't intended from the people running the fund. They wanted it to capture some uh, asymmetry if it existed but it will mm. be linked closely to index. So right. then it's got this big debate because you bring in this hedge fund guy who clearly has some position of interest, now some conflict possibly because his other fund could maybe invest in some same stocks like the oil fund does, right? So suddenly mm. there's a narrative that 
he can take like advantage of the system. But in, in, in reality, he's losing a lot of money to go back to Oslo to, to run this fund. And he right. almost get pushed out of the job because mm -hmm. the narrative from the politicians is that you don't need a brilliant hedge fund brain because you can just stay in index and you're mm -hmm. good. From your side, I feel like that's a very stupid debate to have, but I guess that's what ends up if politicians get involved. So how would you look at that situation that you, we hire a brilliant guy, take him home from London, and Norway almost pushes him out because there could be a conflict of interest since he had a hedge fund before? Well, I think that's a typical of uh, two, two mindsets uh, colliding. You have the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. So in the fixed mindset, people uh, are envious. They think that value is an, uh, a fixed uh, thing. Um, um, they, they have a problem if somebody is successful. Uh, and in the growth mindset, people think that, um, that talent and work and risk taking can make a difference. And uh, I, in another way to put it is that some people think of value as a cake that needs to be shared, and some think of it as a bakery uh, that needs to be stimulated. Um, so there are, there are many examples where people can, cannot handle uh, brilliant talent because they have a fixed mindset. And it's, it's really sad to see. Fortunately, there are always places where uh, brilliant minds can go. So they have no shortage of of, of uh, employment, of work opportunities, but it's a pity when they are not deployed where the, their, their talent could have the biggest effects. Uh, if I take uh, uh, another fund, it's not as big, but it's big, um, where they have much a growth mindset, that is the Yale Endowment, which is the endowment run by the Yale University, which, which is more than $30 billion now, I think. And that has for many years been run by David Svensson, who uh, he, he, he almost single-handedly invented what is called the endowment model, which is a, a, a concept of how to run big funds. And he, um, he has almost zero cash. Uh, so he is in, in, um, in equities, real estate, a little bit in commodities and forest and so on, but around f half the fund or more is in uh, in alternative investments, which are uh, private equity, including uh, venture capital, so venture capital and, and buyout funds and so on, and hedge funds. So in these funds, the managers charge between one percent and two percent administration fee a year a year but they also charge 10 to 20 percent of the profit for themselves as success fee and you know some people they don't want to invest in these funds because the managers make so much money even though these funds on average beat the index at least private equity does the beat the index by four and a half percent so they they prefer to earn less as long as it means that nobody gets rich from from going their way. And that's, I mean, I, it's sad to see that, that, it, that some people go that way. But as I said, in the Yale endowment, they have a growth mindset and they have fantastic results. 
I, I don't know if this is the right analogy, but I, I just wanted to put it out there. Maybe you can build on top of that idea. But isn't that kind of the same, just telling like a football player that if he wants to be the best in the world, he shouldn't be able to win the Champions League and play for the biggest audience because that would be like, he now is way too much ahead of the pack. But maybe since this is about money, like people feel much more jealous than like a sportsman earning yeah, a lot of money. You can say, make an analogy there for the players, say, please don't play so well because it bothers us. But you could also say you run a football team and say, I, I want to hire Ronaldo as a fantastic player. And uh, if we have him, we will win the championship. And then somebody says, yeah, but we don't want him to earn that much. So we prefer that you hire somebody who can't play football uh, and pay him a normal salary. <laughs> then you're not going to win the championship. Uh, but the analogy is not perfect because um, sport is a zero-sum game in the sense that for every, for every winner, there's a loser. But business and finance is not a, a zero-sum game. The better it's done, the, the, the more value is created by everyone. And there's something that many people don't know about finance, and that, that is that it serves two incredibly important roles for society as a whole. The first one is that it allocates resources to where they are best used. Of course, mistakes are made, but on average, it does that very efficiently. It's a little bit like if, if uh, you have a botanical garden and you have the gardeners and the gardeners walk around and they can see, oh, this, uh, this tree or this flower needs more nutrition and needs more water and this is not getting enough light and so on. So they optimize everything and that creates a lot of insight, talent and work to do that right. Um, uh, it's, it's particularly evident in venture capital where you have all these startups and you sit there and look at thousands of cases and then you choose maybe one or two out of a thousand and say this one is the most promising, we'll allocate capital to this. So that's one role. And I think that's intuitively, once you get it told, you know, it's intuitively, most people can understand that that's quite important. The other one uh, is less intuitive, and that is the role of the speculator. So the speculator, uh, which could even be a day trader or you know a high high churn trader, what value does speculation create? But then, you, if you think about that, if you're building a factory or you are <clears throat> running a farm or you are doing mining and so on, you very often have enormous uncertainty because of your fluctuations in interest rates, in share prices, in foreign, in you know, uh, currency exchange rates, commodity prices, and so on. They all go up and down like this all the time. So you make your business model to justify to build a factory, for instance, or to open a mine. A mine. Uh, and you have this Excel spreadsheet, perhaps, and you put in different assumptions about all these variables. And then you sit there and say, okay, so if all of you know this is on average is so and so in the next 10 years, then we are going to make 6% profit or 10%, whatever it is. Then you go up in the Excel spreadsheet and you change the variable, say, what if the interest rates go up? You change it and suddenly it becomes a loss. And then you say, what if the cover price goes down? Loss. What if this, what if, what if that's, what if we, we are exporting to the United States and then the dollar goes down, loss. So people would not 
make many of these commitments to the future unless they could go out and hedge themselves. So they, they can go out in the market at any given time and then fix the interest rate, fix the, the foreign exchange rate, fix the commodity prices and so on. And they do that by trading with the speculators. So the speculators are on the other side of the trade typically, and they take over the risk. And of course, the speculators, in order to make money, they have to be good at calculating the risk. But there would not be so much growth and commitment and investment in society if you did not have this very big, very liquid market of speculators who would take over the risk. And you can think about it in another way, that if you, you're thinking about uh, building a house for yourself, for your family, and the house uh, maybe costs uh, 10 years income, and it's imp you cannot insure the house against anything. There's no insurance market, it does not exist. There are no insurance companies in the world. And you think, what if it burns down? If it burns down, I've lost everything. So I'm not going to build a house. Now, because there are insurance companies, you can go out and insure for the, the disaster. You can insure the house against uh, burning down, against you know, big uh, fungus and whatever. And so that costs you a bit of money, but then you have the, the, com the commitment to uh, build the house. So financial markets are very useful. And without financial markets, uh, the whole society stops. And if you travel around in Europe, uh, you will see many places, uh, beautiful, beautiful, but massive uh, farmhouses from rich families with 30, <laughs> 30 bedrooms and so on. And uh, I mean, now they are quite impressive and some of them are being turned into uh, hotels and restaurants and so on. But they are a sign of a market that did not have a financial efficient system. So the wealth that was created by these farming families, they had nowhere to put the money, but to build their house bigger and bigger and bigger until it became completely ridiculous. But if they had had a financial market, they would have built the house only to a reasonable size. And then they would have uh, spent the rest of the money on buying equities and bonds and so on. Super interesting. Uh, I have a couple of questions, but I will start with the first one. Uh, this is from like a Scandinavian lens. Um, do you feel it's sad that the smartest people from Scandinavia typically uh, live in Switzerland or, or other countries? Because it would be not so comfortable to build a huge uh, venture capital fund in Scandinavia based on the past performances, let's say from unicorns. What do you feel like are the missing pieces for people to actually stay in Scandinavia and build big funds that actually provide equities and opportunities for entrepreneurs? Because a lot of things in life, in business are investor driven, but usually it's investor driven after entrepreneurs come and build like these networks. So you have Silicon Valley, you probably have Switzerland and finance. How would you like if you were if you were going to build a hub in Scandinavia, what would you do to fix it? Because clearly it's not working perfectly. Well, I, I would say that Switzerland is, no, excuse me, Sweden is actually doing pretty well on this front. Um, if you compare Sweden to Finland, Norway and Denmark, it's way ahead on, on the venture capital scene. Uh, it has something to do partly with taxation of capital gains and equities. 
and how you tax-wise deal with stock options and so on. But I, I, <clears throat> I would say that Switzerland works, uh, <laughs> Sweden uh, works quite well. Um, but in Denmark, for instance, um, the, the majority of the unicorns that are created in Denmark leave Denmark before they become unicorns. And in some cases, you can say it's a good idea because they, they, are, they have global potential and maybe they should be in Silicon Valley or somewhere else. Um, but in many cases, it's also got something to do with um, the framework conditions that are not very attractive. And almost nobody would say in public that they left because of the tax pressure. But when you know them privately, they tell you that that's what happened. And they leave when they smell that this is going to become a success, they quietly leave the country and set up somewhere else. Um, so there are some countries in, in Europe that have um, zero or close to zero uh, capital gains tax on equities gains. Uh, Switzerland has zero, Holland has 1%. Uh, a lot have quite low, uh, Sweden has pretty low. I think the average is for EU is 28%, not quite sure it's around that, uh, but in Denmark it's more than 40%. Um, what, what I have seen, because I've, I've been living in this community internationally for many decades, is that most of the people who create great companies, when they, uh, if and when they, they sell the stakes, they take most of the money and use it for creating more. Uh, great companies or investing in, in other people's startups because that's what gives them uh, thrill in life. I, I cannot really think of great entrepreneurs who take their money and move to the, you know, to live on a beach because the, the mindset that is required to uh, create great companies is a mindset that would, or it's a mentality it's a personality that would get bored to death in two days on a beach. So they need to work. They, they are workaholic, workaholics. Uh, they're creative, they're risk takers, and they, they need to do it and they do it. So I think in, in, in Scandinavia that uh, the, the, the first thing to do would be to reduce taxation on capital gains and equities. The next part, if you're talking to, let's say, a socialist, is that, okay, if everyone does like Luxembourg, Switzerland, and London, there's nothing left for the society. But again, maybe that is just like that fixed mindset, because maybe socialists aren't that aware of that it's better to grow the pie than to fight for the pie. Yeah, it's a, it's a mindset. Um, many people think that, okay, if you have uh, low taxation, uh, you benefit because you just move money from other places to where you are. But it's not like that because you, when you have low taxation, much more value is created by the average piece, person who was already there. And I can see now, uh, so I've lived in Switzerland for 28 years. I came from Denmark. A lot of things are exactly the same. A lot of the mindset, the values are exactly the same. But in Switzerland, they have uh, tax rates are massively, you know, substantially lower than Denmark. The, the highest VAT in Switzerland is 7.7%. Denmark is uh, 25. Um, Denmark has 100, and I think it's, it's 100, 152, even more car tax. And Switzerland has zero car tax. 
Denmark has this high capital gains tax. Uh, Switzerland has zero. Switzerland has zero or very low um, inheritance tax. Um, it, the top marginal tax, the marginal tax rates is between 20% in central Switzerland to 40% in Geneva. In Denmark it's, it's much higher. So the funny thing is that the Swiss, um, they get about the same amount in, in tax uh, per inhabitant as Denmark. So how does that work out? Because they earn so much more. On average, the Swiss people are four times as rich. They, are, they earn 60% more. So you're, you're just, this is like the bakery. The bakery is just producing a lot more in Switzerland. So you don't have to charge so much per, for every cake because there are more cakes. Do you want to fix this in especially Denmark? Do you take an active part in telling these stories or have you given up after 25 well, years in Switzerland? Um, 28, but I, I've, written, I've written two books that I think have had some impact. One is called The Creative Society, which is about um, what made the Western civilization certainly run way ahead of, of all, all other civilizations in many ways. Another one was only written in Danish and it's called uh, The Goose, away if I translated, The Goose with a Golden Egg, and it's about how, how value is created in society and the difference between the, bad, the, the mindsets and effect of and effects of collectivism, libertarianism and conservatism. So I, I know that a lot of influ influential people have read it. I've done, done a lot, of, given a lot of speeches and webinars and so on. And I, I can see that some of it has had an impact because my examples are often used. Okay, good. So, but if, if we go uh, some years ahead or maybe 10, 20 years, there is a popular idea that capitalism and socialism needs to merge soon. That's why you have the universal basic income narrative going around. And I think the the idea to explain it very simply, so maybe this is a bit too simply explained, but if you have this growth in AI, etc., and this tech, if tech industry takes more and more of the cake, the question is how many people will be obsolete and how fast will it go? Because of course you can always create new jobs like in 50 years ago, no one could predict it that Facebook ad uh, is a great way of earning money if you know how to use a Facebook platform and sell ads on it. But still many smart people, especially in Silicon Valley feel like this time around, it's a bit different because it goes so fast. So many people will be displaced faster than before. Do you share that narrative or do you feel like uh, it's just people underestimate how many new jobs you create anyway in 10 years? So it's hard to calculate and say this time around, it will not be enough jobs out there for everyone. I can understand when people say that, you, first of all, um, in general, technology does not uh, remove uh, more jobs than it creates. We know that uh, because since the Stone Age, the average productivity per capita in the world, depending on how you calculate it, has multiplied by a factor of 200 to 400. So if, if uh, technology one-to-one -one removed jobs, then 99% of all people in the world, 99 point something would be unemployed. Actually, we are pretty close to full employment in, in apart from COVID in the wealthy uh, countries. So 
we know that it ad adapts all the time. I spent a lot of time in Vabie. So when my parents were young, Vabie, the ski resort, was there was nothing there except you know ten cows and and, and a guy. And now it's it's a billion dollar business. People skiing of all things. You have ski mountain guys and ski guys and cocktail uh, mixers and all the rest of it. So uh, we keep doing that. And one day perhaps we'll play golf on the moon. Who knows? Um, so okay so it's going uh some of this technology technological development is going to go very fast personally i think we'll be able to cope with that but then the first thing you mentioned here was uh, basic income um, and basic income has had advocates both on the left and on the right like milton friedman um, and other economists who are clearly libertarian on the right have said it was a good idea and people who are socialists have said it is a good idea. So I'm a cautious fan of that, but I'm not a cautious fan of it because I think we'll get systemic unemployment because of technology. No, I'm a cautious fan of it because I think the welfare uh, system that we have created so far um, have very negative effects. It has some positive effects because it, it prevents people from misery, but it also has very negative effects in the sense that it actually sometimes locks people in, in, in a losing position. So if you abandon all the controls and all the administration and so on of the welfare system and say that apart from, you know, you have children, they need free education, old people need retirement, and ill people need to be taken care of. You, you take that, that up and say that this has to be su supplied by society. But, but the rest um, is pretty much scrapped and then you just have basic income uh, offered to everyone. And if you work as much as, as little as one hour per year, that will add to your income. So everything you, you do should, should not change that basic income. So every marginal effort you do to improve your own life should give you an economic benefit. So I'm a fan of that. And um, it's interesting the number of experiments going on with basic income to find out how do people actually respond. Some of them have been negative, some of them positive. So we, we need to learn. But my hope is that um, we should see whole societies implementing basic income and then completely uh, dismantling this super complex welfare system where you have to show up in an office and tell people how bad you feel and how hard it is for you to work, which might be the case, but it is also you have an incentive to present yourself as a loser. And um, whereas if you just have basic income, you don't have that incentive, but you have a clear incentive to just marginally improve your condition all the time. I feel like the part where I'm a bit skeptical about that idea is that I feel like, especially the libertarians, maybe they feel they've become so rich and so now it's time to give back to the poor. That's why they love this idea. But I think they think at least that if you give a guy maybe 30% of the income he or she needs, then they will add their creativity on top of that and produce maybe the idea they wanted to bring to the world because they're afraid of people getting locked in in a nine to five job they can't escape. But I think that's a very good idea on paper, but I'm not sure if you get those dollars on your bank account, if that automatically makes you an entrepreneur. 
No, I mean, by, it's, you don't have to be uh, like Bill Gates uh, style entrepreneur, but you can just decide to go out and take a, you know, take a job just to choose something. And maybe uh, you're a hippie and you prefer to live in a cave in Menorca, uh, but you want more money than the, your basic income. So you find out that yes, you need to work on a bar as a bartender some of the time in order to improve your standard of living. But we need to experiment with this. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a conservative in the sense of what Karl Popper said um, about social experiments, which is that uh, revolutions are horrible. What you need to do is you have to, if you think something will work, you implement it in a very limited way. And then you check the effects. If the effects are good, you, you take one more incremental step in the same direction and so on. This is a conservative approach to change. And uh, if you see that there are, there are problems, obviously you, you change it or you, you go back to where you were. So I would not just go out and implement basic income in the society and pray that it works. I would definitely experiment with some models and, and investigate changes to people's behavior. But I also feel like we have that system already in Scandinavia. If you compare it to US, for instance, I would not say that's the same idea in those countries because I feel like it's in Norway, it's as close as you get to that idea. You can show up and get a full salary if you say you can't work because you're tired. So, I mean, that's pretty mm. close. But I mean, you, you have an interesting part about the incentive, because of course, it's not a great feeling going into the office to say you can't work and that you need money from the state, right? So, mm. yeah, but what you say is you can, you, can, you can show up in an office and say you can't work and you get the full salary. So the ideas of basic income that people are proposing for a whole society on the condition that then you scrap the whole welfare model. It's not that you get a full salary. It's more like you get a stipend like the ones that are given to students in Scandinavia. So this is enough to, to have a very humble life, but it's not a full salary. And that that is so low that for most of people will feel incentivized to do more, to do an effort. What have you changed your mind about recently? Or it could be the last couple of years because you say you're a conservative, you like to see trends maybe evolve a bit more slowly before you act on them, or maybe you like to see some signals building up over time. Is it that your mindset and the way you view of the world, is that pretty much locked in? Or do you typically change your mind from year to year about different stuff that are a bit bigger than small problems? I think I think I'm um, way too old and knowledgeable to change my my values. Uh, my political mindset has become more sophisticated over time, especially since I've written about it. So um, perhaps when I was young, when I was very young, I was a socialist until I was you know around fourteen, and then I started moving <laughs> across the aisle. Um, but now on on politics, I I, I think you have a toolbox, um, and, and toolbox consists of collectivism, libertarianism, and conservatism. You can even split it up to more things. So, uh, for instance, in terms of how to uh, deal with high speed driving, I'm collectivist. So I believe in that we should have rules that say you have to drive on the right side of the road and and the speed limits and and some places at least. Uh, in other in other places, I'm conservative. In other places, I'm libertarian. So you should not, you know, be identify yourself with a political philosophy. You should be much more agile and say this is this applies to this, that to that. Um, but when it comes to tactical things, 
I misjudge stuff often. I'll, um, yeah, I'll give you a couple of examples. So first times I heard about vertical farming, you know, idea of having indoor farms where, where for instance, vegetables are growing on shelves with LED light. I thought it was ridiculous because I thought people wanted it in order to avoid transportation costs. That's, I know transportation costs of food are tiny. And that means that uh, also the environmental impact of transportation is really insignificant. It's, it's, it's more practical to grow it where it grows efficiently and then transport it. What I did not notice was Height's law, which says that LED becomes exponentially cheaper and better. And with that, it turns out that it, it moves from being completely un economically unfeasible to feasible quite quickly. So I misjudged that technology because it, I was not aware of Height's law. Um, and also, when I wrote my, my first book called Super Trends in 2009, I almost dismissed out of hand, uh, the hydrogen economy. I pointed out the hydrogen is not an energy source, that hydrogen does not exist free in nature, that you have to separate it chemically from whatever it is bound to, that re requires a lot of energy. You, then you get the energy back when you use it as a fuel, but it's not an energy source. And it's also highly impractical because it has a tendency to explode violently and needs very high pressure, blah, blah, blah. <coughs> Turns that, out now- That happened in Norway, by the way. It exploded I mean, one. It happened in Norway. One of yeah, the... so it uh, turns out that now people have worked on the technology a lot and it's beginning to look uh, a lot more feasible. It's not an energy resource. Uh, it's still not an energy resource, but it, it might be a very efficient liquid battery, just like, like oil is a liquid battery, but it's a liquid battery that you can charge up with nuclear or, or wind or solar. So sometimes, yeah, I... I um, I get stuff wrong on technology. Can we can we riff on a trend that I find really fascinating, which is the potential in space industry? Have you watched that closely? Well, I watch it because it's I, uh, because it's uh, visual and it's dramatic, uh, captivating. Uh, we get more information about it that it really deserves in the technology landscape. I think so. I think uh, satellite communication is obviously a very great benefit for mankind. I don't think uh, going to other planets is anywhere near to being a, a, a material benefit for mankind. I think that's like a more sports sports uh, endeavor. And, you know, like, can we do it? If we should send anything to uh, other planets, I think it should be robots. That would be far more rational. So you don't, you don't have a ticket on the Virgin Galactic tourism ship? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I would for sure think it would be interesting to go out in space or to the moon, but I'm not sure it would be a lot more interesting than going skiing in Vapier, which is fantastic. That's a fair point. You had some other podcast guests that also enjoyed those ski trips in Switzerland. Um, I wanted to use, spend the last bit of the podcast on your personal life and you can decide how much you want to share, but Obviously, you're very tactical in a business sense, and you're interested about analytics and metrics, etc. But what are some of the personal philosophy? Does that blend in your in your business mindset, or do you clearly separate family and business and how you view sort of coming home for dinner? Is that a metric in your life, etc.? Or do you clearly just separate those two? 
Well, I live a, a bit of a special life because I got, uh, after 30 years of marriage, I got uh, divorced three years ago, four years ago. And, um, and then um, two years ago, one and a half years ago, I got remarried uh, to, to a woman who lives in Denmark and I, li I live in Switzerland. And we decided to keep it that way. So we only together about 20% of the time. So I don't have this normal life where you come home and your family's there and dinners and so on. A lot of my time I am alone in Switzerland or in the entire summer, I am on a boat, which has a crew and has lots of people. And there I'm typically surrounded by eight, 10 people or so on any given day. Um, but I have some in terms of personal philo philosophy, of course, there are many things, but I'm, I'm quite uh conscious about something called the Cartman's drama triangle are you familiar with that term so Cartman was a psychologist and he started uh, under Eric Byrne Eric Byrne he wrote a book called games people play which is within what is called positive psychology what he did was he studied how um, normal people behaved and he studied in particular when something was dysfunctional. So, of course, in every family, on every workplace, there's dysfunctional stuff, bad communication, misunderstandings, and so on. And Eric Byrne, he categorized that and he described some standard games, standard ways that, that things gone haywire. Um, but then Cartman, he said, a lot of this can be generalized into one single game. And that is a game that involves somebody who uh, is a, a, a victim, somebody who is a perpetrator, and somebody who's a savior. And he described how around the family table, dinner table, you can have this game going around, and you can have it in a workplace in different places. And when I read that, I became much more conscious that I don't want to play that game at all. And that's also what he says. He, he said, be, be conscious of it and stop playing it. It's, it's nothing good comes from that game. So what is the what is the alternative? The alternative is to become an independent person who takes full responsibility for herself or himself, and who's also very good at doing win-win cooperation, you know, voluntary win-win cooperation with other people. And that is very described, very well described in Coe's book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly what, Efficient People. I think Effective, I think, or yeah, Effective. same. Where he described that uh, when you are a baby, you're a you person, so you're entirely dependent on your parents and you abuse your parents and you love your parents and you adore them and you admire them, but your entire life is in, um, tied to that relationship to the parents. Uh, then um, later, uh, in most cases, you become a me person. That means that you decide to take responsibility for yourself. This is the thing that very often does not go well because of the welfare state. So when people um, live in welfare states, some people live like you personal people the whole life. So instead of the, you know, having this relationship with the parents, they just have it with the welfare state and they play the victim role all the time while at the same time blaming the system that is feeding them. So it's about getting out of that, being dependent, nobody taking full responsibility for yourself, also your error, your health, everything. And then the last step is to become a we person where you cooperate with other independent people. 
So I'm quite, I'm, I'm very conscious about that. And when I feel that hope, now I just behave like a victim or now I'm pretending to be the savior of the world or now I'm, I'm suppressing other people. I say, stop, last gotta stop that. Don't do that. Uh, we have to live like independent, strong people. I mean, I mean, it's so important. I think uh, another take, which is just saying what you're saying is that um, life can be very uh, hard on you and it's very easy to get in, into that victim role, but it's yeah, much yeah. better to be a survivor. So if you have something terrible happening to you uh, growing up, you can decide to be a victim or you can just say, I'm a survivor and I have to keep yeah. going. If you get mm -hmm. like a terrible disease or you have something very bad mentally in your head and stuff, it can be whatever, right? I think... But again, this is easier said than done. And saying that sit, sitting in Switzerland, it's kind of like people will also look at that to say, but what if, how has he, has he faced adversity? Or is it just something that you can recite science? So maybe is it possible to give an example where you have to actually use it if it was something terrible going on in your life? It could be a fixed scenario just to, just to explain to people how to use it because everyone can read philosophy. It doesn't mean they can bring it into their life, right? Yeah, uh, an obvious uh, element is your health. I mean, so of course you can be handicapped for genetic reasons or, or other reasons, but if you don't have uh, a very bad natural handicap, your health is really up to you. I mean, you can decide whether you want to exercise and and eat healthy and all the rest of it, and you can decide not to do it. Uh, but if you decide not to do it, it's not it's not somebody else's problem. It's not somebody else's fault. It's yours. And to to make that kind of decisions, um, it's, uh, I, th I think I see people who certainly wake up quite late in life and said, "I realize I have to take responsibility for myself or for this part of myself," but I didn't do it before. I, mean, I don't know if that's a good enough example, but if you take an example of somebody who in his, uh, in what he says, does not behave like an independent person, then it's Donald Trump. And I actually think Donald Trump has been a super efficient president in many ways, but the way he communicates, he never takes responsibility for his own errors, like never. It's always somebody else's fault. And that is, in that case, he is communicating like a you person, not like a me or a we person. And that's one of the problems many people have with him. Although I don't think many people would put it into this uh, theoretical context. I agree. Uh, maybe that's a good uh, segue over to the last part, because there's a lot of people listening that are maybe in the age between 20 to 35 with a lot of talent and a lot of grit. And of course, everyone wants you to say, what should they do to have the success you have? But you can't generalize that type of stuff because it's your own journey and you have to do it on your own. But what are some of the inputs you give if friends or people ask you, Lars, do you have any advice? I'm a bit stuck in a career at CopyMG or whatever. Yeah, the, what, there's one thing I would always say, and I've said it many times to, uh, in media, but also to people uh, privately, and that is to test yourself. You can go on the internet and you can take personality tests uh, for free, and there are many of them, and they're very good. Um, I, I, I realized that about uh, um, more than 10 years ago when I was, I was writing a book called The Psychology of Finance. 
so of course I was reading a lot about books about psychology and then I uh, started testing myself to just as a part of my studies and some of the tests that came out with recommendations for what I should do in life and these recommendations were very close to what I actually had found out you know the hard way um, I think if you have a very good understanding of who you are then you also will understand much better why you fail in some situations and succeed in others. You will be much more conscious about what way you should, should go. So uh, of all the things you can do to improve your life, I think this would be one of the best investments in terms of time. doesn't need to cost any money at all. Some tests do cost money, but many are for free. Um, do some three, four, five tests or more, and then think about it and think about, am I living... <laughs> am I am I the right place, considering who I am? I think one myth is that a great person like yourself or Ray Dalio or Mats Forholt, you just expect them to deliver in every position because they're smart. But I've seen some people being misplaced in the workplace and performing terrible. So it's mm. just about you have to play on the right field. And maybe this is a great way to understand what is your field. Yeah, I mean, there are, clearly there are many people who have enormous potential uh, somewhere else. <laughs> they're, they're just the wrong place. Yeah. There's a lot of them. I agree. So last question, what can people do for you if they want to connect or help you in your adventures? How can they, with, <laughs> besides going to Switzerland and ski with you, what are you looking for in people you hire and you work with? Is it finding those win-win opportunities? Yeah, so I don't like to have people working directly for me. So I have um, I have stakes in about 26 uh, startups directly or indirectly. Uh, and now I have this uh, venture fund. I run the super trends companies and uh, so on. But they're not work nobody nobody reports to me uh, because I don't like to be a people manager. And that's one of the things that was confirmed from from these personality tests, but uh, connect with me on social media, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Facebook, uh, follow me. And if you have something that you think we could do together, write to me. Um, and then uh, might not have time to respond to everything right away, especially not the last two weeks, but <laughs> typically I do find time to come back or and I can say it's not this is not for me but somebody else i do not now invest in startup companies because i already have so much and last piece what book do you recommend for them to read you've written many yourself do you have any best book recommendation that is perfect in 2020 i i i, I, I have to tell you i'm gonna recommend my own books because i try to make them the best <laughs> uh, if you're interested in, in in Western civilization, society, and politics, I would recommend the Creative Society. If you're interested in in general economics and business cycles, I would recommend my book called Business Cycles, which is the best-selling book on business cycles in the world for the last thirty years, I think, as far as I can see on Amazon. Um, those would be my two recommendations. I have a lot of other books about different uh, aspects that I did not write. Oh yeah, there's one book. If you're if you're interested in, in in the stickiness of culture, then you should read a super fascinating book called Black Rednecks, White Liberals by Thomas Sowell. It's amazing. It's seven stories about culture and uh, and history. 
And also, probably if Lars only uses 12 days to write a book, there's more coming, I expect. Yeah, there's, uh, there's one that I'm thinking about with a McKinsey partner, uh, which is about uh, running companies in a world where technology is evolving so quickly. That, that might happen. Thank you so much for taking the time, Lars. It was awesome. It was a pleasure. Take care. Hi, everyone. Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you like this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care. <laughs>